Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. And now we look at 1 Corinthians, something a little bit new for us, uh, a, a letter, and that's the thing. This is a letter. This isn't a book. We tend to open the Bible and we go, I'm going to look at the book of 1 Corinthians, but it's not what it was. It was a letter. And you think about what a letter is, we're, we're getting into the mind of Paul and his relationship with a specific group of people that is the church at Corinth. We get to see some things that were happening in the church there and how Paul was trying to intercede on their behalf so that he could be of good help and be a blessing to them. In other words, we get into their mind a little bit. And that's tough when you think about it. We're a couple of thousand years removed from this stuff, Right. And so part of what we have to do is we have to unpack a little bit of the history, a little bit of what's going on so that we can understand the instruction that he was giving to this church. And then so it is that we can see how that would be applicable to us. The letters of Paul, if you read any New Testament scholars, they would say the letters of Paul are what are known as occasional letters. And all that means is, is there was a situation that that church was going through and that Paul was having to write them to address the situations that they were going through. There was an occasion for it. Not everything that you find in Paul's letters were meant for every church at all times and all places, but it was meant, for example, for that church because of things that they were dealing with. And the letters to the church at Corinth aren't going to be any different. It was a letter written by Paul with the help of a man named Sosthenes. And I want you to remember that name because that guy is going to crop back up. In the first verse, in fact, of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that this letter comes from the both of them. We're not exactly sure what that means, but what it possibly means is, is that Paul was dictating it to this guy named Sosthenes. Sosthenes was the guy that was perhaps writing it down. What's interesting, though, is we talked about this letter and call it 1 Corinthians, but it actually isn't even the first letter to the church at Corinth. We know that. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul refers to a previous letter that he had written to them. So this letter that we're studying, not even 1 Corinthians. It's probably really 2 Corinthians. I'll tell you something even more interesting. If you were to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he refers to a different letter. Scholars actually call it the severe letter. How many of you want to receive that one? The severe letter. We don't have that one either. So 2 Corinthians is actually probably not even 2 Corinthians. It's probably something like 4 Corinthians. Here's the reason I bring that up. is because Paul was constantly interacting with this church to help them with the, the issues that they were dealing with. He was present with them, even if sometimes in body he was way gone. He didn't write this in Corinth. He wrote this probably in Ephesus, from what we can tell. So we get into his head a little bit. Isn't that cool? Because of letters that he wrote conversations that you see between him and his church. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at what the Lord wants to teach us today. Here's what it says in chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Sosthenes. All right, stop for just a second. I want to give you a little bit of background here. To understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians, you really actually have to go to a different book, and it's called Acts. How many of you have heard of the book of Acts? Now, I'm going to fill you in on a little bit here, so get your pencils and your papers out because you're going to be jotting some notes down. Are you ready to go? Let's go. 
Let's go to Acts chapter 7 for just a second. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill you in on what's happening here. In Acts chapter 7, you get a little bit of background. There's a guy named Stephen. Many of you have heard of Stephen because Stephen is what's considered to be the first martyr of the early Christian church. Stephen is preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 7 to the Sanhedrin, and he's doing it in Jerusalem. Now, this, you got to understand, a lot of this is happening not terribly far after the resurrection of Jesus himself in the location where all of this was going down. The church starts there. Not an easy place to start a church when they've been standing against you the whole time, right? But here you've got a guy named Stephen who is proclaiming the gospel to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, they don't even believe in the miraculous or resurrections or anything like that. And as you can imagine, they didn't like it. They didn't like it. And they became so furious with Stephen that they decided to stone him. Now, there was a man there that commissioned the stoning of Stephen, and his name is Saul. You've probably heard of him. Saul, just so you know, is his Jewish name. Later, you would find in the book of Acts, he's referred to as Paul, which is his Latin name. And he's a brilliant guy. Paul is not your run-of-the-mill kind of guy. He's brilliant. Uh, He was trained in Tarsus of Cilicia. And just so you know, that would be like going up into the area of Boston where you have Harvard and MIT and all that. This was considered to be the academic hotbed of the ancient Near East. And he studied there. Later, he sits at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great teachers of the Jewish faith. Paul got to sit under him. He becomes the top of the Pharisees. This is a guy that's got some rank and he's got some pull. He has men and women arrested, though, for their Christian faith. And then if you look ahead and you get to Acts chapter 9, here's what happens. You have the stoning of Stephen. The church is starting to scatter a little bit, much like what you see in Ukraine. You see people from the church that are trying to evacuate. Well, it was the same. They were trying to get out of there. And and before his conversion, here's what he, he goes to the other leaders and he says, I know where the Christians are going. They're headed to Damascus. I'd like for you to send me there. I'm done with the hit job on Stephen and these Christians. Now let me go over to Damascus so that I can hunt these people down. And they were like, sounds good to us. And what you find in Acts chapter 9 is this guy has an experience that he never thought was coming in his life. Because he's out on the road to Damascus, he is encountered by the resurrected Jesus Christ, and he says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? And because of that encounter with the risen Lord, this man was never the same. I mean, you think about it. He wanted to arrest Christians. He wanted to take them back to Jerusalem. But after this encounter, he converts to what Acts chapter 9 calls the way. See, Christians actually weren't even called Christians yet. That doesn't happen until the church at Antioch. It's called the way. And this guy says, sign me up. So the man that goes from hunting Christians becomes the man that writes half of your New Testament. So when you look at somebody and you think that there is absolutely no hope for them, I want you to remember this guy. Because it doesn't matter how far somebody has gone, the grace of Jesus Christ is big enough to break down the stronghold and to bring somebody into himself. It is able. Believe it. And here's what he says. 
Here's what he says. He meets this guy named Ananias, and Ananias is the one that leads him to the Lord and baptizes Saul. And I love this in chapter 9, verse 15. It says, he, that is Saul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, to carry my name before the Gentiles and before their kings and before the people of Israel. You get a snapshot that God is going to do something incredible with this guy. This, just so you know, I, I was thinking about this week. This would be like Vladimir Putin when you think about it. It would be like Vladimir Putin getting up in Ukraine. Imagine, imagine this guy showing up and saying, hello. How many Christians do you think would be like, I'm excited to see this guy? Probably not very many. It would be like Vladimir Putin going into Ukraine and saying, greetings, brothers and sisters. How well do you think that would go? And yet the Lord did it. He did it. And you see in Acts chapter 9 that Saul preaches to the Jews. And then he preaches to what's called the Hellenistic Jews. And I know this is going to stun you, but they don't like it. They don't like it. And so right off the bat, this is right after his conversion, he's sharing what the Lord has done for him, and they conspire to have him killed. Are you seeing a theme here yet? They conspire to have him killed. So here's what happens. Eventually, Saul is sent to Caesarea, and then he goes to another place called Tarsus, and you don't hear from him for a while. It just, it kind of goes quiet. What was he doing? We actually, we're not sure. Uh, how long was he there? We're actually not sure. Some say nine years. Some say as many as 13 to 14 years. However, once he shows back up on the scene, this guy travels more than 10,000 miles by foot and by boat to preach the gospel and to plant churches. Now that we know. This guy had an amazing impact for the church. He would start a church, he would put leadership up, and he was like, I'm out, because he would go to another place, start a church up, put leadership in, and I'm out, and start another church, put leadership, do you see a theme here? So that as many people as possible would know what he had found in Jesus. And then you get to Acts chapter 18, a pivotal moment in the life of this guy. Because see, what Paul would do is he would go to cities that had major trade routes. And he had a job himself. He was a tent worker. It's what he would do. And so what that meant was he would hang with the artisans. And so in Acts chapter 18, you find him rolling into this city called Corinth. And as he rolls into the city, well, Corinth had major trade routes. Most of the people that lived in Corinth, they were artisans, just like this guy maybe middle class, something like that. In other words, they had trade. And he meets this couple named Aquila and Priscilla there, and they become very instrumental for the work that God does through him. But the way it describes it is Paul would go in, he would preach in the synagogues, not a lot of friendly ears there. But what happens in Acts chapter 18, in verse 6, it says they became abusive to him. And at that point, Paul gives a response. Basically, it's this. I'm done with you. I'm done with you. Uh, I've come to you. This is the way you respond to me. 
Now I'm going to take the message to the Gentiles. And so he does. He always had gone to the Jews first until this moment in Corinth. And watch what happens. That's what happens in verse 6 of Acts 18. Here's what happens in verse 7. It says he walks out of the synagogue and he goes next door. He didn't go 5,000 miles away. He walks out and he went next door to the house of Titius Justus and Crispus. These were the synagogue, this was a synagogue leader, and it says his entire household believed in the Lord, and all he had to do was go next door. And many Corinthians, Acts says, who heard Paul, believed and were baptized. In verse 11, Paul stayed in Corinth, just so you know, he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. That's a long time for this guy. Matter of fact, it's second only to the church at Ephesus in terms of the length that he stayed there. And before this, just so you know, most Christians were Jewish converts. Corinth is the first church that was predominantly Gentile, and they were pretty messed up people. More on that here in just a little bit. But I love this line that you see in verse 10. The line that gets me the most in Acts 18.10, it says, I'm with you. Think of all the persecution that he's been through. And it's, by the way, it's only going to get worse for him. But this is a man that never quits. But I love verse 10. The Lord says, I'm with you. And no one is going to harm you because I have many people in this city. The Lord, in an act of mercy, says, continue the ministry. I'm going to protect you for a while because I have a lot of people waiting for you in this city. And one example, scholars would point out, you remember verse 1? I said two guys, Paul and Sosthenes. There's a name that crops up in Acts chapter 18, and a number of scholars think it might be this guy. Here's what it says in Acts 18. After Paul had been in Corinth about 18 months, the Jews, led by Sosthenes, united in an attack on Paul, bringing him before the Roman proconsul Gallio. As this city was under Roman rule, the Roman court was the ultimate authority in major disputes, and the charge against Paul was that, quote, this is Acts 18, 13. This man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. So here you've got a guy named Sosthenes that a number of New Testament scholars think was putting a hit out on Paul because he was preaching Jesus Christ. And then you flip over to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and who's helping Paul write the letter to the church at Corinth but a guy named Sosthenes. Might be the same guy. And if so, think about what that means. It isn't just that Paul was basically the Vladimir Putin of the ancient Near East that comes to Jesus. It could also be that Sosthenes did exactly the same thing. God's grace is able. Now that's a little bit about, about Paul. Now let's talk about the church. And this is where I pick up in verses 2 and 3 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's what it says. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And here's what he says. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. May he give you grace and peace. So who are the Corinthians? Who are the people that he's writing to? Well, here's who they are. Because of its location, that is Corinth, 
It's located near what's called an isthmus, right? Now, a lot of travel is happening around there. Now, you had a couple of options here. One was you could hook up through the bay and you could go over an isthmus, right? Kind of a little inlet. Another possibility is you go all the way around Greece. And if you go all the way around Greece, you would have to run into what's called the Cape of Malais. Now, what they would say is you don't want to go there because the Cape of Malais is basically, it's a death sentence. So most of the people skipped that and they would go through Corinth. All the people with all of their trade and with all of their wealth. And now you've got this guy named Paul walking into town ready to shake himself up a little bit. And it was probably, just so you know, the wealthiest city in Greece. It was a major urban center. Think Houston. All right, don't, but you know. Every two years, just like, what was going on in this place? Every two years, they would host what was called the Isthmian Games. Sports. Every two years. And people would flood into Corinth to basically think like, I don't know, think like the Olympics. But if maybe you're not a sports person, that's all right. Because there was a large theater there that would seat 18,000 people. And uh, they would bring as many as 3,000 would bring in for drama and music. They had everything in Corinth. Right behind it, there was a massive hill that overlooked the town, and it was dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. Have you ever heard of her? Aphrodite. She is the goddess of love and sex. And trust me, the Corinthians wouldn't let you down in that category. In fact, she was so much of a reputation was connected to Corinth that Plato, when he wrote The Republic, if he referred to you as a Corinthian girl, it was basically calling you loose sexually. They had that kind of reputation in the community around them. You know, I lived in New Orleans for several years. I get it. One, one New Testament scholar actually said Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world, right? Just trying to make it come alive for you a little bit. That's some of the stuff that was going on here. It wasn't just that. Corinth had other shrines too. There were temples to tons of gods that were there. One was to Asclepius. This is the god of medicine, Isis, who was the the god of seafaring. And she had a Greek counterpart. Are y'all writing all this down? She had a Greek counterpart named Poseidon. How many of you have ever heard of him? Poseidon, the god of the sea. And so you can imagine people bringing all their wares in to trade. And who are you going to pray to? Don't worry about it. We've got a god for that. That's Corinth. Gods and temples everywhere. And this is why so much makes sense out of what he says in verse 2 to the church. I want you to be sanctified. Here's what he didn't say. You have corruption all around you. Get out. Get out. It's not what he said. He said, stay where you're at, but be different. Be different. And he mentions this because, frankly, the church was living just like Corinth. There wasn't much different about them. Uh, Let me just give you a couple of examples. They were visiting temple prostitutes. They were going up during temple feasts in the worship of other gods and saying, yeah, sounds good. Pass the meat. Worshiping with them. They were suing each other. They were threatening lawsuits against each other. Which is why later in 1 Corinthians 13, he's saying, you guys need to learn how to love. 
And you need to learn how to reconcile. You're not very good at it. And, but Paul gives a reminder in this, be, this beautiful letter. A couple of things that I want you to set in your heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. In spite of all the mess of this church, which sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? It's a mess, but it's a beautiful mess. In 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he says, I see all this stuff that you're doing. I see everything that's going on around you. Such were some of you. It's who you were. But now you're different. Remember that you're different. And he highlights this with this wonderful verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. He says, you've been bought with a price. You've been bought. See, the, the price that we were bought with we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it wasn't paid with mere gold or silver who's val- who lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He bought you. He bought you. And so you're not your own. You're not your own. Even the body that you have, we love to say it's ours, and it's not really ours. Even that was bought with a price. Really, all of it is his. The question is, how are we using it? And so Paul reminded the church at Corinth that, their, that the ownership of their bodies had been transferred to Christ. They knew what slaves meant. They were everywhere. They got it. And when somebody was bought, That meant that somebody else was in control of what they purchased. And he's looking at the church and saying, somebody else is in control of you because you were bought by him. You no longer have the right or the freedom to use your body any way that you want to. Instead, it's his. See, this story, this letter to the church at Corinth, my friends, in spite of the mess that he's going to have to deal with, hopefully to correct them and get them back on track, The story is all about grace. It's all about grace. I want you you to imagine for just a second that you're $500,000 in debt. Are you with me yet? You're $500,000 in debt. And someone comes up to you and writes out a check for $500,000 and says, this is for you. And I'm giving this to you so that you can cancel your debt. And here's what's more. You don't have to do anything but reach out and take it, and it's yours. And so you take the money, you pay the debt. Well, in that sense, you're now debt-free, right? But here's why I bring up the example, and I ask it in the form of a question. Given that situation, what do you have to boast about? And the answer, as far as I can see, is absolutely nothing. Can you go around bragging that you had the power, the skill, and the brains to reach out and take the check? As far as I can tell, the answer is no. Can you talk about the favor that you did to the person that was giving you $500,000 because you were taking all that troublesome money off of their hands? And as far as I can tell, the answer is no. What you received when somebody offered that to you was grace. Nothing more and nothing less. And it was sufficient 
to cover everything. And the reason that I bring that up is because that is the story of why everyone that is here that calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ can be here and say that. Is because we have absolutely nothing to brag about or to boast about. The only thing that we brought to our salvation was the need for it. And he met it. And that offer this morning, my friends, is still here for you. I'm reminded, and this is how we end this morning, is of Galatians 6.14. Here's what Paul said. He said, as for me, may I never boast about anything, I mean anything, except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has died. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.